Amen. Well, this morning we are going to start something that uh, I, I had planned initially to start in January, but um, just abiding in Christ in the month of January, and then also just kind of feeling like, um, even even health-wise, as I've shared, uh, just kind of putting some things a little bit on the back burner, but now just getting into the book of Revelation this morning, you have some notes. I'm not sure if we're going to do this every Sunday or if it's going to be this Sunday and like every other, but it could be every Sunday. Grab a pen, follow along. We're going to dig into this book, and uh, I think that I know, I don't even think, I was going to say I think that we'll be blessed. I don't think that, I, I know we'll be blessed because it's promised in God's word. So turn to Revelation, the end of the book, the very last book of the Bible, and we are going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we are going to, to look at um, just the beginning to this incredible, incredible book. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This morning, as we consider uh, the book of Revelation... I want to begin with just asking the question, why should we study the book of Revelation? Why, why take time uh, to take this book? Because I believe that there are so many people that are Christians that, that there's almost two schools of, of thought. One, there's an overemphasis sometimes on the book of Revelation, that, that everything is about Revelation, everything is prophecy, every world event, every news event, everything that, they, everything that happens in their life, every trial points that Jesus is probably coming back today. And there's this, this kind of sense like trying to figure out who are all the main characters and who, are, who plays those parts. Who is that Antichrist going to be? And who are these world powers? And... and and so wrapped up in it at times to the neglect of other books of the Bible. In fact, I know personally some people that in my lifetime have been experts in the book of Revelation, experts in, in prophetic um, things of the word of God and understanding how that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And yet I, there's been glaring blind spots in their life like love your neighbor <laughs> like I, I know like what this means and this symbol in these years, but but like I, I hate this guy and I don't I don't want to talk to him and that so there's this overemphasis and then the pendulum swings to the other side, which is an absolute neglect of the Book of Revelation. In fact, the Anglican Church, which has a, a yearly reading schedule, 
um, many times in that yearly reading schedule in the past have actually left any reading of the book of Revelation out because they didn't want to be controversial, maybe. Maybe there were some different opinions or some different um, theologies about it. So we, we could run the risk of ignoring this book of the Bible. A lot of Christians sometimes think that this is an unfruitful thing to even uh, read the book of Revelation, that it might be futile. But I'm telling you that I know people who have come to Christ just from reading it. My good friend, Justin Richter, who pastors the Anchor in Gilroy, the church that I, I left and, and uh, he's pastoring there now. When he was growing up, just as a high school student, uh, he was fascinated with end times prophecy. And as he was fascinated, he just picked up the book of Revelation, just started reading it. Alone in his room, as he was reading it, he started to weep. He didn't know what it meant. He didn't know what all the parts, how they all came together, but there was something in there that resonated in his heart that there's something true about this. And he opened up his heart and that was the beginning of him beginning to pray. The book of Revelation is an absolutely powerful book. So when it comes to why we should study the book of Revelation, first of all, notice it says that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do you want to know about Jesus? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to find out what he's like and what his character is and, and who he is? Then read the book of Revelation because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We read it to get to know Jesus. We also realize that, maybe you've heard this before, that the, the new is in the old concealed. So the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament concealed. But the old is in the new revealed. So when we begin to read the New Testament, it starts to make sense that the Old Testament was pointing towards these things. And so much of the imagery, so much of the book of Revelation is direct quotes from other parts of the Bible. So if you don't think that, you know, you look at Revelation and go, wow, this is crazy. Well, maybe you haven't read the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible is just talking about all of this stuff. You read Daniel, you read Ezekiel, you even go back into uh, Exodus. I mean, there's so much that we could get from the imagery from the rest of the Bible. So we read the, the book of Revelation, we study it so that we can understand the Bible because I want to know what God's word says. Again, when we think about Genesis, it begins with the words, in the beginning. And when you read the book of Genesis, you find very quickly that there is a, a narrative about a tree that is set in the garden. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil It's set in juxtaposition to when we read the end of the book of Revelation and we read the end of the Bible to the tree that is there and to Jesus who hung on the tree. And really, in a sense, you have this narrative of these two trees. And so we have the book of Revelation to help us to understand these things. We see that there are two Adams, that that Adam created Adam was the the Adam that came as the representative of, of mankind. Adam and Eve. But then you see that the second Adam, Jesus, he came to fulfill all of the things that Adam messed up and he came to redeem us. Let me tell you, we also read and study the book of Revelation, which literally means unveiled or revealed. When we read the book of Revelation, I want to challenge you to try to see the book of Revelation the way that a lot of communist country Christians read the book of Revelation. I had a professor at Azusa Pacific that his, he's Armenian and his grandparents are still in Armenia and his great-grandparents. And he said that when they read the book of Revelation, 
when the Soviet Union came in and just obliterated just massive graves and just persecution and killing people and taking the Bible away from the churches and saying we are going to become a secular nation, the people that underground had the book of Revelation, they read it for hope. They read it to realize that God is still in control. The same thing is true when Chairman Mao took over communist China in the Cultural Revolution. They devoured the book of Revelation. And even when um, the communistic uh, government said, hey, you could have your Bible back, one of the things they cut out was the book of Revelation. Because they didn't want these people to think that the hope was something outside of the state, outside of the government. So let's read the book of Revelation for hope. I don't know what you need hope in for your life, but I guarantee you that when we study some background this morning, you're going to see that if God can give hope through the book of Revelation to these people, he could give hope to us. And then let's read and study the book of Revelation for worship. Just the theme of worship. Um, there are times when I just get gripped by this thought. You know, my, my dad a couple of years ago went to be with the Lord. And, and then I know people in the last you know, few years, some good friends and, and some people that we're close to, uh, one friend in high school that we have the same birthday, that uh, he, he called me, he's like, Matt, I have cancer, and I was praying with him through that, and, and uh, my friend John, he became a Christian, and he said, Matt, I just want you to know that I have hope in the same thing you have hope in, I have hope in Christ, but I have this picture in my mind of what worship looks like in heaven, and when I read the book of Revelation, I can't help but thinking of the people that I love that are there before me that this is what they're seeing. And I hope and pray that when we look at Revelation, we're not just looking at it to look at what's gonna happen in end times and, and maybe what fits into a prophetical timeline, but, but may our hearts just be filled with the worship of God because we're reading this and we go, God is alive and he is in control. And Jesus, the same Jesus that died on the cross is resurrected and he is living. So may it cause us to worship. Some of the themes, as we've talked about, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The veil is torn. Remember when Jesus died on the cross that the veil um, in, in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And in a sense, when you look at the unveiling of Jesus in the book of Revelation, you're going to find the first and only really physical description detailed of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Lord. So it's the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus. We see him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, to this first century church, for them, that meant there is no more Caesar worship. There is no more worship of an emperor. There is no more worship of a person that would come in and bring the Pax Romana, bring peace. Our worship is only towards Jesus. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to the Jews, it reminded them that in all the persecution throughout all of the years, whether it would be Egypt or Babylon or Greece or Persia or Rome, that Jesus reigns over all of that. And I want to say today, this encourages me because when I look at ISIS and I look at what is happening around our world, the book of Revelation stands in stark contrast to intimidation and feeling like we're, we have no control to realizing that Jesus has control. We read this the book of Revelation, one of the themes is the things to come. The second advent of the Christ. Um, you know, the, the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio won uh, Best Actor for is called The Revenant. I remember when I heard the title of that, it just sounded to me like, what a cool title. I didn't know what it meant. I was like, The Revenant, that just sounds awesome. You know, like epic, like battle scenes or something. So I looked it up. 
The word revenant, let me tell you what it, what it means. It means one who returns, especially after death. <laughs> one who returns, especially after death. And look at Jesus. Jesus has returned. All right, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he returns in full strength. So when we look at things to come, it gives us hope, but it also hopefully gives us some urgency in how we live our lives. It's not escapism. There are some people that look at the futurist version of Revelation as, oh, you guys are just trying to escape the world. Just like let the world go to hell because you're saved and the rapture is gonna take you. And so just let them go. And that's not what it's talking about. In fact, we're going to look at how Paul and the earlier church was motivated because realizing that Jesus could come back at any time, it motivated them to reach out to more and more people. It gave them courage in the face of persecution. We'll look at the millennial reign of Christ, and then we're going to look at the church, God's faithful people, the heirs, the the scene in heaven with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. What an incredible thing. I mean, I, I've been to, to China smuggling in Bibles, met missionaries there, met with the underground church back in like early 19, late 1980s. I remember being there in China singing worship songs with these people I had never met before. And we had the same melody because we were singing the same song, but they were, you know, they were singing in Mandarin or Cantonese and I was singing in English, just beautiful people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That's this thing that we call the church. People from every walk of life. The theme of persecution and wrath reminds us that God is just and there will be judgment. And and you know, sometimes people say, I can't believe in a God of wrath. I can't believe in a God that doesn't have wrath. I I can't. I mean, that, that would be like Hitler died and he just got away with it and that's it. There, there's no wrath it's just soul sleep and, or non-existence. Well, you know what? When I read the Bible, I re- realize that God is just and he's merciful in his just judgment. And in the midst of persecution, there's also going to be wrath for those that continue to rebel against him. And then we read it again for worship, the glory of God, the glory of God throughout the book of Revelation. So when it comes to interpretation, for the book of Revelation. Uh, instead of making this a class lecture this morning and giving you everything about all these rules, of it, I'm just gonna give you an intro and it's gonna be like a, I'm just gonna sprinkle that in like seasoning as we go through the book because there's going to be times when, when some of these aspects of the rules of interpretation become uh, more prominent. Just some general things is, You know, when the first sense makes sense, don't look for another sense. Look at that literal meaning, unless there's a reason not to. We look at the context, both in scripture and in history. Look at the scriptural, historical context. Realize that not all of Revelation is in exact chronological order. And we're going to let scripture interpret scripture. So, there are four main views. Again, this is just an introduction. I'm not going to go in super in-depth, but... The first view is the historicist approach. From Christ's resurrection until now, um, basically they believe that the book of Revelation is kind of like a history. And and we're looking at the history of of Jesus from the resurrection until now. And most of the people that hold to this view believe this. We are going to change this world by our engagement and involvement. We're going to vote 
we're going to go out and change public policy. We are going to change the culture. We're going to infiltrate, um, you know, theater. We're going to infiltrate music. We're going to infiltrate politics. And eventually we're going to usher in this millennial reign of Christ. Now, I don't hold to that, but I do want to let you know, in all of these views, super important that you know this, there are godly, smart, scholarly people that hold to each of these views that are great brothers and sisters in Christ that I have fellowship with, that I'm friends with, that we partner in ministry together, that we pray for one another. So as we look at this, don't think, okay, here's the right view, and this right view means everyone else has a a wrong view, so they must be dumber than me, and they must not be spiritual, they must not be godly, because God would have revealed it to them. Don't think like that. So the historicist. The next one is the preterist approach. This is the approach that all of these things, just the great, great majority of the things of the book of Revelation took place in the first century under Nero. In order for that to be true, then the book of Revelation had to be written earlier. They believed that the book of Revelation was written under a guy named Caesar Nero instead of Domitian. And so we'll we'll look at that a little bit more. And again, there are some things that seem to make sense in some parts of that, which we'll get into as we go. There is the spiritualizing approach that sees the book of Revelation really as allegory. You know, it's kind of like, all symbolic. Um, You know, if it's just allegory, this doesn't encourage me when I'm facing ISIS. This doesn't encourage me if I'm facing Hitler. This doesn't uh, encourage me if I'm facing Mao, if this is just allegory. But if there is a Jesus who is real, who will conquer all evil and will reign, and there is a literal um, reign of Christ in his kingdom, then, then it brings hope. But again, there are some things that, yeah, there are a lot of symbols within the book of Revelation. And the last one is the futurist approach. And the futurist approach looks at it and realizes that there's some historical parts of it. But then from chapter four, um, there's a view of things that are going to be happening in the future. You could look at some of the early church fathers like Arrhenius and many of the early church fathers that believe this that the book of Revelation has to mean something that is real. So, all have some strength, all have godly, smart, scholarly people that support it, but personally, I look at the futurist approach as what I see um, as being the most, um, I guess the most consistent with the rest of the Bible. And so, we're gonna look at that and we'll look at some of the other approaches as well, but again, we're going to kind of trickle all that through as we go through the book of Revelation. So this morning in verse 1, we're going to, Lord willing, get through eight verses. All right, we're going we're gonna to try. I was studying going, I don't know if we'll be able to do that, but I think, I think we can. The background of the book of Revelation of Jesus, there was persecution under two emperors that were the rulers of the Roman Empire. One was named Caesar Nero, and the other one was named Domitian. Under Nero was the real beginning of this persecution. Now let me explain what that persecution looked like. Because sometimes we could look at um, persecution today and go, well, you know what, you know, the the Bible was worse, or now it's worse. I I just want to let you know that under Nero, 
Nero actually had Christians dressed up in animal clothes, put a wool on them, took lamb skins because they were like Christians, like Jesus, the Lamb of God, and sent them into the, the Roman Colosseum to be fed to lions. Some of them were tortured and dipped in wax and they were burned at the stake and he would mock them and he would say, look at the light of the world, these Christians who are the light of the world. So when we look at what is happening in our world today, God knew that the people of this first century needed to hear what he gave to them at this point of time. And there was an incredible persecution also under a man named Domitian who came and and now it was not just uh, small, but throughout the Roman Empire, there became more and more widespread persecution of Christians. So as Christians were severely persecuted, property was seized. I think of children that, that if they survived and their parents were killed, then the children became orphans and they became slaves. Now, I get discouraged when I look at the political climate today. I just, I try to not look at the news a whole lot, but when I do, I just get, I get angry, I get discouraged, sometimes I feel frustrated, but this is nothing. My world, our world, our, this is nothing compared to what it was like for the Christians in that first century. Right now, no one is busting into this place and dragging us out. There's no one that's lighting me on fire right now. There is, there is no one that is putting me in a stadium so that I could fight against lions. That's not happening to me right now. But it was happening to the early church. Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, knowing that these Christians need to be encouraged, knowing that they need to hear something, gave John this incredible revelation. There were martyrs of the faith. Let me explain what happened to some of them. Some of these disciples of Jesus, these apostles, James was beheaded. Nathaniel, in whom there was no guile, he was skinned alive. That's what happened to Nathaniel. Philip was hanged. Matthew, whom we have the gospel of Matthew, he was beheaded. Thomas was impaled upon a stake until he died. I, I just think about Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, dragged behind a chariot until he died. Luke was crucified. Paul was beheaded. And Peter was crucified upside down. Because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord. Now we think we have it bad, right? There's problems. There's persecution. This is what happened to their pastors. This is what happened to their church leaders. And in the middle of this, there's a a man named John. John the Beloved, who was with Jesus all the way to the cross. John is put in boiling oil, does not die. God miraculously saves him. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos because Jesus is going to reveal this to John so that through this angel that Jesus gives it to, it's going to be revealed to us to be able to read today in 2016 to say, hey, I have this little problem. I have this thing that I'm facing today. And I need to know that Jesus is strong enough to be able to deal with what it is that I'm going through that he knows my past and he knows my present and he knows my future. He knew that his faithful followers at this time needed to hear this. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse one, which God gave um, to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. 
The revelation that was given was to show his servants, not to hide it from them. So notice what it says in verse 1. Here's, here's a key to interpreting. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So this is not something that we read and go, hey, you know what? This is only for theologians. It's only for pastors and seminary professors. This is something that is to be revealed because Jesus wanted this to be shown, to be displayed to his servants. About what? Things which must take place shortly. And he sent and signified it by his angel to, to, to his servant, John. This unveiling and presentation of Jesus, it's like the curtain rises and Jesus comes out. And this divine revelation from the father to Jesus, Jesus to the angel or this messenger, the angel to the servant, John, and John to us, his servants. God is presenting his son to his servants. And it says it's something that must take place. These are things which must take place shortly now here's a question when it says that these things must take place shortly what do you think about that <laughs> i mean do you, i mean think about this 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 book the book of revelation is a letter written to the churches in the early you know the first century and it says these things must take place shortly you're going well it's you know it's been a long time you know it's been two thousand years I don't know what God is trying to pull on us, but it says that these things are shortly. This is where the preterists come in and say, see, all of these things happen in the first century. Now, I will say that there are some things that happen in the first century, but let me explain it this way. Shortly, that could mean a couple of days. Now, maybe this is speaking of Jesus's time. Do you remember that um, to, to Christ, to God, that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So it's been a couple of days. So that's, that's a possibility. Let me tell you another possibility that I think makes a lot of sense. It's that when it happens, the word could also be translated as quickly, quickly take place. It's kind of like a fire drill. We drill, we drill, we drill. There's teachers that have been teachers for 30 something years and have never had a real fire, right? But they drill because when it's a real fire, it's gonna happen quickly and they're gonna be out of that classroom. It's like a police officer that's never fired his sidearm even though he practices and he's trained and he might even go all the way through i have a friend that he he's going to retire soon from um he was in san jose pd and now he's up north in uh atherton and he's a, a police officer he's I, i've never fired fired my service sidearm and he said i think i'm going to retire with never firing that but i'll tell you that if he has to fire it it's going to be quickly when it happens so these things are are going to take place we realize that in verse 2, it says, um, again, it, it's not the revelation of John, but this revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's another word that kind of gets us confused, the revelation. Some Bibles say the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we think of this movie, this war movie, Apocalypse Now. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like helicopters are coming in and, and like this intense, and there are intense scenes like that. But the apocalypse literally means the unveiling. This is a revealing of Jesus Christ. And it's to John. It's been given to John. It's the revelation of Jesus. In verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So John, this servant, is going to bear testimony to all things that he saw. He's John the beloved. It says that uh, in John 15, 15, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. So in 1 John, John, this person who also wrote the book of Revelation wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. What a great person to be the, the human author of this Holy Spirit inspired letter. If you chose someone to write a letter like, hey, or to read a letter, you know, maybe your last will and testament and you have a friend or a family member like, hey, I entrust this to you because I want you to read this to the people that I love. I can't think of a better person than John who was with Jesus all the way to the cross. He was the last living apostle at this time. Now notice in verse three, awesome. We have this built-in blessing in this book. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those um, and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. First of all, we're blessed to read it. I, I read it out loud. So we're blessed, all right? We just, we read part of, we're gonna do this as we go through the, Re, the revelation of Christ. We're, we're gonna read it. And those who hear, you heard it. You might not understand everything, but you're blessed because you heard it. There's going to be something that God does with that. But notice it says, and blessed to keep the things that are written in it. There's a guy named Bob Goff that has a Bible study called Love Does. And um, he, he explains, he, he doesn't call it a Bible study. He calls it a Bible doing. And the reason why he calls it a Bible doing it's because he said sometimes as Christians, and he's just, it drives them crazy. We get in these little groups where we just sit together in circles. Hey, what does this word mean? Oh, I think in the Greek it means this, you know? And what does this mean? I think that this word means this, and the tense of this means this, and, and this refers to this scripture and this, and that's great. That is great. But if we don't do anything with what we receive, then we're missing out. As it says in the book of James, we're like the person that saw his face in the mirror, walks away and is like, what, what do I look like? Like, I don't, I don't remember what I look like. I got, I got to go look again. But we need to do the word of God. So this morning, there's going to be some application that you take from this. Like, what do we do with this? And then notice, it says, for the time is near. Now, again, the time is near. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, he addressed singleness. If you ever read chapter seven of 1 Corinthians, he addresses marriage, he addresses singleness. Do you remember what he says? Do you guys remember that? He's like, hey, in my opinion, what did he say? It's better to be single. He's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to save you from heartache and pain. You know, the person that's married is, is concerned with the things of this world, how he might please his wife and, you know, husband, uh, wife might please her husband. Yeah, I just want you to be free from these cares. And notice in the context of that, Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, but I say, brethren, that the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, don't like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> single, you know, I'm gonna live like I'm single. He just, 
He says, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, those who use this world is not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Let me explain. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he believed that the return of Christ was so imminent, so close, that it motivated him to go throughout all of these areas that we read about ephesus you know uh, galatia why did he go why was this an urgency i gotta get to rome because jesus is coming back and because he's coming back i want to reach people as quickly as as much as i can as many as i can i want to have a lasting impact how did the imminent return of christ paul believing that it could be in his lifetime in the time of short let me just ask you how did that affect paul's life was he kicking back in Club Med on, on uh, the beach, you know, sipping Mai Tais and like, hey, all the time in the world. You know, I'm going to take 20 years and enjoy this. At the end of my life, you know, I'm just going to go on this world tour and I'm just going to go and I'm going to reach a bunch of people. No, you know what Paul did? Every day to live as Christ and to die as gain. He was all about it. So when we look at the motivation of this, there are sometimes critics of the future's view that say, hey, you're just trying, it's escapism. And if it is escapism, then it is the wrong application maybe of a correct interpretation. Because if it's just for my escape, I don't have any, I can't stand these people at my school, you know, my classmates, my teacher, I just hate it. Just, I want the rapture to come. You know, I just hate these people. I just, God save us, you know, come back because I, I don't like my boss. You know, just the rapture would solve all of this. And, and if we look at that, and that's motivation to how we live, it's a wrong application of, of these scriptures. There should be an urgency. In fact, the urgency caused me to go witness to my dad who didn't know the Lord until his late 60s. And I had nightmares. I remember having dreams. My my tears drenching my pillow because i knew that my dad didn't know the lord and in my heart as a high school student jesus you could come back at any moment not just could my dad die but i know you could come back and jesus please don't come back until let me, let me save my, use me and save my dad that was my heart that should be our hearts for reading this there should be something that we leave this huddle today we leave this place this morning with a little bit of urgency like hey i got to do something and you know i i love one of the things I just love about this millennial generation, this generation in high school, young adults, the 20-somethings, is that they're so filled with do. I just got to do something. Like we could look at, oh, there's hunger around the world. But this generation is like, we have to do something. We got to go to those people. Yeah, there's, there's human trafficking. We, we have to do something. You know, we have to have that do something about us. But not leaving behind doctrine or theology or other things. It's both and, not either or. It's both and. It's being rooted and grounded in scripture, but then taking those things and then doing something about it. Because you know what? There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in our county that don't know Jesus yet. There's a lot of people in our schools and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces that don't know the Lord. And the book of Revelation for me is this wake-up call reminding me of what really is important. What really is gonna last? Is it gonna be your house? Yeah, I'm going to pass it on to my kids. Well, how long is that going to last? To their kids? I mean, in the United States, we think of a house. Man, that house is old. It's like 80 years old. That's an old house. Go to Israel. <laughs> you go to Israel, and you're like, uh, you know, there's, 
this this has been standing for 1500 years and like oh wow you know that's my house and the construction of my house is not going to last for 1500 years the book of revelation reminds us like why are we it this built-in blessing to put these things into action and then he gives his greeting let's not forget this when a letter is written as an epistle there are certain parts a formula of greeting and here's the greeting that is given so God gives this revelation through an angel to John and verse four it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, um, it's not Korea, Philippines, China. This is Asia Minor, which is the Mediterranean area where we look at Turkey today. Okay, so this is the Asia that it's speaking of. Why seven churches? Well, these, there's many different reasons. These are seven key churches that existed at the time of the writing, um, seven churches that had an influence on the rest of Christianity, but also the number seven is complete. It's, it's a completeness. I really believe that this represents, that this is to the churches. This is something because it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That this is a letter that is not just for these churches, but also open for all of the churches. And then this familiar greeting, as we studied the uh, letters of Paul, then you know this, it says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John addresses this the same way that Paul does. Notice grace is always before peace. It doesn't say peace and grace. And that's, that's very grammatically significant because we can't have peace with God without the grace of God first. And you can't have peace in your life without the grace of God in your life. Grace comes before peace. You know, there are so many people in our world, and this applies to so many people that are looking for peace. There are a myriad of apps today for a smartphone on something that it's become a catchphrase today called mindfulness. In fact, it's one of the values of the Golden State Warriors. It's mindfulness. And, and there's some things that are good about that. It's just being aware of your present situation and current surroundings. But, but so much of this is being perpetrated as something that needs we need to have in order to have peace. You know, there's an app uh, that's called Calm. It's just an app called Calm. And like there's like two minutes of Calm or five minutes of Calm or like, uh, you know, ten minutes. And it's like... Whoosh you know, waves, you know, and like seagulls. And then, and then it kind of goes into breathe and then sense your back and then sense your, you know, like all these things. And then, and then it ends, it says, now open your eyes. Okay, now get to that deadline. You got to get this done. You got to study for this final. You got to cram, you got to make it happen. And like the peace is gone. But this grace that God gives, I'm not fighting with God anymore. There's a peace. God has it under control. If I'm looking for a peace that comes from control, I will be bitter and I will be frustrated because my life is out of control so many times. There are so many things out of our ability to control. Sometimes it's other people's reactions. Sometimes it's things that happen to you. Sometimes it's things of health or finances or the stock market or, or you know, president, uh, you know, that comes, uh, you know, whatever. There's things that are outside of our control. And if we're looking for a peace that comes from control, it's a peace that will always evade us. But when it's a peace that comes from God's grace, undeserved, like even in my trials, on my worst day, I deserve worse. 
on my worst day, I deserve worse, but God is giving me more. He's giving me relationship with him. He's giving me a hope and a future. I need this to remember grace comes before this peace. And you know who it comes from? Notice it says, from him who is. So God is, he's present. Mindfulness. God is here now. Um, He was. God knows your past. And if if you're so afraid of people getting to know you because then they'll know your past, know this, that God already knows your past and he loves you. God knows your past. But you know what? If you suffer from anxiety over the future, it says, and who is to come. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what the answer from the doctor will be when you're waiting on the test. He knows how your taxes are going to come out as you're busy entering them into TurboTax. And you're, he, he knows. He knows the future. He knows what's going to happen in that relationship that you're struggling with. He knows what's going to happen with that college application, that job application. He knows those things. So he's the one that gives us peace. And from the seven spirits who are, who are before his throne, again, Zechariah 4, Isaiah 11, talks about the sevenfold spirit of God, the aspects of the Holy Spirit. But remember, seven is completeness or perfection. It's not seven Holy Spirits, but it's speaking of this sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is, who was, and who is to come. Let me say one last thing about this, and then we'll move on. Um, how many of you have ever been to the Rose Parade in Pasadena? All right, some of you know what that's like. We did it one time as, as a kid. Uh, we spent the night, I was so excited about doing that. It was pretty fun, but I was a small little kid that could not see the parade. And I was bummed because like every, you know, we were back behind everyone. Or maybe you've been there, you know, when the Giants, you know, or the Warriors win or whatever, you try to get to the parade. And, and you're, you're looking and, and there's apps that tell you where you are and what's coming, okay? What, what's coming? Oh, the next float. This is the float that is coming by, and I could, I could see what that float is. But someone that is over there, you know, further down, they already saw that. So as you see this float coming, that's your future, and it's already past them. That's their past. Jesus sees all of it, all at one point in time. He sees the past. He sees the present and the future, And verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the word there is martyr, um, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead, first in prominence, and he is the only one that has raised himself from the dead. Lazarus died and rose again, but then he died again, right? Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He rose, and he rose. (laughs) He ain't dying again, and that's it. So the firstborn, and and also um, the faithful witness. Jesus is this faithful witness, and he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Do you think that that gives, do you think that that would give some encouragement to Christians that were suffering under Domitian or under Nero? Jesus reigns over the kings of the earth. Do you think that gives hope if whomever you want to be president doesn't become president? It's like, oh, now now God's out of control. Now he can't do anything because this person won. Now God is helpless. If if that person, this person I want to win would have won, God would not be helpless. But my person didn't win. Now God is helpless. No, he is king of kings. He rules over all. 
And you know what? This, is, this should cause us to break into doxology, which is just a fancy word for just worship and singing. Because it says, you know, to him, John just breaks into this worship because he's talking about Jesus, he's writing about Jesus, and all of a sudden, the goal for Bible study should be this, this worship. It says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Just that, that verse alone is mind-boggling. I just think of this. Him who loved us. You know, one of the things that sets Jesus apart from any other God is his incredible love for us. Go talk to a Muslim and realize that when it comes to trying to please Allah, that there are things that they have to do. But there is no thing about God loving them so much that he's willing to die for their sins. And then think about relationship that we have with Jesus. It's not just that he died for our sins, but he desires to have fellowship with us. He desires this ongoing relationship to him who loved us. And then he washed us from our sins with his blood. Is there anything that that strikes you as strange about that? He washed us from our sins with his blood. So here's my sin. And I could imagine having to die for my sin. I can imagine, okay, you did something wrong. You're going to pay. God is a God of justice, and God doesn't let that go by, and so you have to pay. What is crazy is that because of my sin, Jesus paid for it with his blood to wash me clean. That is just an amazing, amazing thing of the gospel. He loved us. And then in verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kings and priests, representatives of God. In the Old Testament, realize this. The king was never, ever supposed to take on the role of a priest. Saul tried to do this. And the kingdom was ripped from him. Because the the ministry of the priest was only given to the priest. The ministry of the king was only given to the king. And through Christ, because of what Jesus has done... He has made us representatives. He has made us heirs, kings, and priests, representatives who intercede to his God and Father, to him. Now, because we're kings and priests doesn't mean to us be the glory, but to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we who are believers will have an opportunity to reign with him under his authority, but only as we serve him. The glory is to go to him. If God is going to do something great, by the way, in your life, you must be, I must be prepared to give God the glory. And if you want God to do something great in your life, then prepare ahead of time that when God works and as he has worked, to give him the glory. It doesn't mean that you can't say thank you or or you're welcome. When someone says, hey, you know what? Thank you. You know, you came over and you brought food and, and we were, you know, our family was sick and you brought us food. And, uh, you know, the person can say, well, glory to God. And I understand that, but it's okay to say thank you. And that's, that's a good, kind thing to say thank you, but, but not thank you. <laughs> I know, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty good person, right? And, uh, you know, if more people were like me, this world would be such a better place. <laughs> it's, it's a thank you. It's a humble thank you. But, but glory goes to God. In verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. They who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. 
Even so, amen. So Jesus will be coming back to the earth to establish the kingdom of God. The age of man is going to close and the world is being destroyed. Jesus, in verse uh, Matthew 24, 22, it says, except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, uh, sake, those days shall be shortened. In Jude 14, it says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. And in Matthew 24, 30, he will be coming in clouds with great glory to establish the kingdom of God. So, so we see all of these things. And remember in the book of Acts, Jesus said, in the, the angel said, in the same way that he ascended, he's gonna descend, you know, with these clouds. We should, we should be anticipating, looking, ready, waiting, you know, watchful. That should be our heart. When we don't have hearts like that, then we could start to live kind of loose. And then we could also become kind of self-absorbed because it's just about my own life. So at the second coming, every eye will see. And by the way, when he comes with clouds, there's also that symbolic cloud in Hebrews 12.1, this great cloud of witnesses. So the question is, are you ready? Am I, what am I doing to prepare for that? What am I doing to prepare, not only to be with him, but how am I living to bless others and to show and tell the love of God so that they understand who Jesus is? There should be something, again, that I'm doing as a result of this. And then Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God, the Alpha and the Omega. But then Jesus is also called the Alpha and the Omega. We're going to see that Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I'm not, we're going to get into this in the second half of chapter 1, but, but just know this. Later on, he says, and I was alive and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So Jehovah's Witnesses will say the Alpha and the Omega, that's God the Father. But when was God dead? God was not dead. Jesus died and then he rose again. So this is Jesus. And in closing, when you consider the Alpha and the Omega, there's two Greek letters, the alphabet. It's like the A to Z. Jesus is the A to the Z. And I, I in the past, have just skipped so quickly over this part. He's the alpha, the omega. Okay, I get it. He's the beginning, he's the end. You know, he's... But let me ask you this. What is the beginning for you? Where, where is your inception point, your origin story, when you start making decisions? Do you start with God? Or do you inquire of God somewhere in the middle after you've already made the decision and you're saying, God, I hope this is the right thing. Please bless me. Don't let this be wrong. Is he your beginning if he's not the alpha, not the beginning, and we all came into this life haphazardly by chance, it's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak for someone that was born in, in a place that is suffering intense persecution and a very, very poor country. If it, this is all random and it's just haphazard and there's no beginning, there's no intelligent thought in planning these things out, then, then all of your history is so overwhelmingly bleak that you can't overcome it. 
Maybe your beginning is, man, I was born into a bad, bad situation in my family. Maybe I live with some, some brutality, some abuse. Maybe, maybe your beginning is like, hey, you know what? My beginning is like, uh, I, I don't even know why I'm here. If Jesus is not your beginning, then you still haven't found your purpose. If Jesus is not, it's not what you start with, then you still haven't found why you exist. And then he says, I am the omega. What is the omega? The omega is the end, right? He's the end. What is the end game for you? What is your end goal of life? This is, I'm gonna get real personal right now. If your end game is, you know what? I just want a good job. I wanna buy a house. And I wanna be involved in ministry, in this particular ministry that I want to do, in the way that I wanna do it. And I wanna have enough, you know, to be comfortable, not, but this is my end game then what happens when your end game isn't going well? What happens when you've prayed and your end game is maybe great finances, great health, great relations? What happens when that isn't going well in your life? I have heard from so many people that have been followers of Christ that have fallen away, whether they really know the Lord or not, I don't know. But I have heard this, I tried that. I tried Christianity, it didn't work for me. Because you know what? I started going to church. I started praying and started reading my Bible. And you know what? My wife actually left me and things got worse. So you know what? In that end game, Jesus is not the end. Jesus is the means to the end. Jesus was my genie to get me what I want. And when he doesn't answer me the way that I want him to answer me, I'm not gonna worship him anymore. See, if Jesus is our end game, that is the only, only way that a persecuted church who is having friends dragged off and burned, that is having people tortured, that is having their kids become orphans. The only thing that brings comfort is Jesus is my end game. And Jesus is still in control. And Jesus knows what I'm going through. And even if I'm facing incredible pain and heartache in my life, Jesus is gonna help me through that and even if nothing turns out in this world the way that I want it to and things fall apart, I know that I have received the greatest treasure I could ever have. That's the book of Revelation. That is Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And just pray that he is our beginning and our end. And we are going to respond with communion. We're gonna have the worship team come up. If you have never just surrendered you know, sometimes we say receive Jesus as Lord. You know what? That, the first process in that is asking by faith, Jesus come into my life. But there is a surrender part that sometimes Christianity culturally can leave off. And we could, be, we could run the danger of forgetting. There's a surrender aspect. If he's gonna be Lord, then that means I have to submit to him. But I wanna let you know that if you've never done that, he is the greatest alpha and he is the greatest omega. Because if the beginning makes sense and the end makes sense, everything in the middle will make sense. But if your beginning and your end don't make sense, your middle doesn't make sense. So come to the Lord, receive Christ, ask him to be your Lord and your savior, surrender to him. And remember that it's by his blood that we're washed. As the worship team leads us, 
I'm going to pray and then I'm going to have you come up and just, you're going to take the bread and the cup back to your own seat. And sometimes we wait till the end and we all partake together, but I just want you to do this on your own during this time of worship. And I just want you to surrender. If you have never given that permission to Jesus to say, I want you to take control, then do that now. Make that prayer and then come and take the bread and the cup because this represents Jesus's body, which is broken for us. It represents Jesus's blood, which has cleansed us from all sin. And for you that have already surrendered to Christ, you're already a Christian. What is it today that you're struggling with? With Jesus being your means to an end instead of the end? You know, Jesus, if this, if this just happens, then everything will be okay. I just want to encourage you to say, Jesus, I know whatever happens, I'm going to trust you. If this doesn't happen the way that I want it to, you've already demonstrated your love for me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're asking that as we worship you, Lord, like, like John, who broke into doxology, just praise and worship because of these truths, that we would break into this praise and worship because of the truth of who you are. You are our beginning and you're our end. Lord, our, our end game is not you coming alongside of us to assist us in what we want to do. Lord, our end game is you. And when Paul said that he had learned that secret of being content, and Paul said that for him to live is Christ and to die, it's gain. God, that's the attitude we want to have. I want to pray for anyone that has never just surrendered their lives to you, that they would experience the peace that comes from your grace, that they would partake of communion with us. This would be a life-altering, changing moment. Lord, for those of us that are your followers, as we partake of communion, remind us of what you've done. May we partake in a worthy manner, realizing that we're unworthy, and you only make us worthy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.